Hey friends, I've been doing series on different annual conferences throughout the United Methodist Church to show what uh, is the same, what's similar, what's different from context to context. Uh, we've looked at Arkansas and North Georgia and West Virginia, and of course all three of those have had different developments with different conference sessions, different bishops, different dynamics in the conference. Um, and of course there's always more to understand that can possibly done and be done in a short segment like this. I'm hoping to keep these like 30 minutes long. This last week, Bishop Fairley of the Kentucky Annual Conference released a, a message that I uh, thought spoke volumes about where we are as a denomination right now. So uh, let me show that to you. Therefore, after prayer for and careful consideration, a fall special session will not be called in Kentucky. We will continue to work with our churches pursuant to our previously published timeline, and we will process remaining 2553 disaffiliations at our June annual conference. I am confident that this is the decision that lessens discard and harm done to one another. In Kentucky, we are ready to pivot toward a hopeful future. So that's the end of a, a message that was a, a good deal longer than that. And um, to be right up front with you, I like Bishop Fairley. Um, you know, it's not that I dislike uh, many of the bishops, but my my inclination in covering this was to to find a way of reporting this so that Bishop Fairley uh, looks really good. And I don't think I don't think it has to be reported in a way where he looks bad, but I do think the situation looks somewhat grim. For conservatives, and and um, there's there's reasons for that. The way the way I wanted to set this up was starting with uh, an article written by Drew McIntyre, where uh, it's called "Misinformation, Humility, and Charity: How to Conference in Babel," and this was uh, published at the beginning of this year. And uh, 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 Drew sees the same threat that I do, which is that it seems to me and, and to many others, that institutional powers are, are um, talking more and more about misinformation in order to set the stage for doing things similar to what we've seen in North Georgia and Arkansas. And um, I think, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a classical liberal, which means I believe in, in free speech. I believe the only answer to bad speech is better speech. And I believe that truth can be sought collectively um, as a society, and then especially as an intentional covenant community. United Methodists have been walking side by side for some time, but uh, according to this article, um, well, he, he sums up some of Jonathan Haidt's um, thoughts. He says, from debates over vaccines to election questions, it seems obvious that many Americans inhabit drastically different worlds in which not only policies or ideologies are divergent, but the view of reality itself. So that, that really makes a lot of sense to me out of, out of what we're dealing with here. I've spent my uh, requisite time on the United Methodist Clergy Facebook page arguing with people on the other side of these issues, and um, over the years I've gotten less angry, less vitriolic. Um, and what I've had to, to reckon with is, is a reality that, that McIntyre points to in this article, which is people on the other side are just as earnest in what they believe. And it's really hard when you disagree with somebody to be able to imagine that they don't know that they're the bad guy. You know, and this is what's killing us is we're living in these very different worlds. We're talking past one another, and we're not getting anything figured out. Most of the time, in fact, people entrench 
rather than considering something from a different worldview. So he highlights at the bottom of this page, this affiliation processes vary from place to place depending on the culture of the conference and the munificence, that just means generosity, of its leadership. And of course, that's what I've been reporting on. Um, the United Methodist Church is, is built on a Wesleyan Methodist framework, which is by nature connectional. And, and the essence of connectionalism is we are connected together. What happens to one part of the body informs the rest of the body. So um, um, some bishops are, are fond of talking about connectionalism in the sense that uh, we are all accountable to one another, and this is what's being cited to justify keeping local churches in the denomination even when they want out. They say, well, this is not a congregational polity. It's a, it's a connectional polity, which means it doesn't really matter what the local church wants. It matters what the collective wants. Um, people like me would disagree with that vehemently. I think it's very problematic to keep people in relationship that don't want to be in relationship. But the way in which connectionalism is real is we have these different annual conferences that are not silos to themselves, but there is a, um, a relationship between each conference and other conferences. We're learning from one another. We are, we are um, affected by one another. And of course, this is what conservatives are very aware of as our apportionment dollars go to pay uh, now two bishop salaries in the Western jurisdiction who are not eligible um, for pastoral ministry, much less the bishopric. Um, what happens in other conferences affects our conference. And so as a lot of churches have been trying to utilize paragraph 2553 in order to exit uh, the denomination, one of the things that individual annual conferences have done is say, tell us your reasons uh, or uh, for wanting to exit, your reasons of conscience. Um, the inactions or inactions of the annual conference. What, what problem do you have with our annual conference? What have we not done? And for a lot of annual conferences, they have upheld the Book of Discipline or at least been able to preserve the image that they have. And so they say, no, 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 don't talk about what's going on in other annual conferences. Just talk about what's going on here. And for those of us who believe in connectionalism in this sense, we're saying uh, what happens in other conferences affects here. And so what happens in, uh, in other places is valid as a reason to not want to belong here. So the key, um, he, he has one other insight, and then I want to get to the key point of his argument here. It would be naive to think that everyone in every place is acting virtuously. I'd like to think that I'm acting virtuously. You get to make up your mind. It would also be naive not to recognize that leaders of both the Global Methodist Church and the United Methodist Church, like politicians and campaign season, face strong incentives to exaggerate their claims in both private conversations and public venues. He's not saying that our leaders or primary speakers are um, dishonest, but he is saying there is an incentive structure in place to hype some things up and to play some things down. So um, with respect to this particular article, misinformation, making the accusation of misinformation, there's a lot of that word being thrown around, but how is it substantiated? And how big a problem is it really? You know, there are a lot of people of the institution who'd be of the mind that a lot of churches wouldn't want to leave if it wasn't for misinformation. It's only because of how things are said wrongly that these congregations want to leave. It couldn't possibly be true that we've had a dysfunctional denomination for decades and people are not out of their mind to want to get out of that. Um, let's, let's get to his key point uh, he talks about Neil Postman and entertaining ourselves to death. Excellent analysis there. We don't have time to go through it. 
Here's his key point. Here's the key paragraph. The story of our denomination's division, like the story of our cultural divisions more broadly, is not a story of heroes and villains. It's a story of good people who have spent decades literally talking past one another, who often fear and thus distrust one another, and who also have sincere disagreements about a number of things. In such a setting, what is and is not information is going to be a highly contested question. Outside of serious evidence about unfair or misleading processes, we should thus exercise caution before accusing one another of misinformation. Calling each other liars is an unfruitful strategy when we are un unable to agree on the truth. Man, I wish I could just play that on repeat for everybody in the United Methodist leadership right now. I think it is so hard to keep this in mind. There really aren't bad guys. As I'm looking at Bishop Fairley, I, I read about his, his bio and what he's about, and I, I think the guy is earnest. I mean, according to everyone who's ever worshipped with him, he is a gracious, uh, loving man. And as I, as I watch different sermons that he's done, as I read different publications that he's had, even this own um, recent statement that he's made saying there's, there's not going to be any other way out after June, it's not done in a spirit uh, you know, I do think that there are some people in leadership that just are not inclined to work with people, and they, they, they do things their own way, and that's all there is to it. He is not one of them. He is, he is a person with a heart who knows that the church is hurting, and he, he deals with this reality from an emotive place. Um, and I, I, I can't help but um, appreciate that and respect that to some degree. You know, if you look at um, his, his statement at the beginning— he says, uh, sisters and brothers in Christ, I've watched with great sadness as congregations have inquired and voted on disaffiliation. It's out of this sadness that I speak to you now. I know many of you are wondering if I will call a special session of annual conference this fall, and then he, he says, I'll answer it at the end. Throughout this disaffiliation process, the Kentucky Annual Conference has acted in ways that have been fair and gracious towards congregations and clergy who have chosen to affiliate or withdraw, and this posture will not change. Now, I, I talk to conservatives in that conference, and they say this is a fair characterization of his ministry and leadership there. And he himself, he goes down the line of his activity to this point. He was proactive in engaging these conversations. He began the disaffiliation process much earlier than most bishops and annual conferences did. Um, as he points out near the end of this article, uh, after this June, there will have been five uh, opportunities for churches to disaffiliate um, before 2553 expires. So um, Kentucky has about, or in, in 2021, they had about 777 churches. And then uh, of those, 80 have already taken their chance to disaffiliate. Um, according to people on the inside of the conference, I wasn't able to get a specific number of how many are slated to disaffiliate in June um, the 5th through 7th is going to be their annual conference date. Um, but they were of the mind that it was a significant portion of the annual conference, much more than 100 other uh, churches. Um, in trying to understand why it is that the bishop is, is um, no longer willing to do this, his own explanation is that it's just been a toxic process that's distracting from the mission of the church, and it's ruining the intimacy that they have there, and it's just a personal... Uh, uh, drain on him, which, you know, you, you can't help but feel sympathetic. Nobody wants to become a bishop to oversee a time of separation like this. But even so, um, 
it, it doesn't quite fit with, you know, if someone really is motivated by compassion, you're really just in a position of who do you have more compassion for? You have to choose, you know, any people are going to be hurt no matter what. So whose feelings are you going to prioritize? Are you going to prioritize the feelings of those who are left behind or the feelings of those who are constrained to stay? And it seems at this point, while he has been more sympathetic to those who are not inclined to stay, now his sympathies are changing. And so part of that would be institutional pressures, and then part of that, and that's what will be particular to this this video as well. Well, no, there's going to be a lot more, but um, Bishop Fairley has gone through some specific things in his time as a bishop that seem to have augmented how he assesses the situation. So the, the institutional forces that are at play um, have to do with uh, worldly notions of power and success, namely uh, uh, the number of churches in that juris or in that, that annual conference and the amount of money that they're giving to the annual conference. And that's not to say that, that anyone in conference leadership is greedy or uh, uh, after filthy lucre, but it's just very demoralizing to start with one place with lots of high numbers and then go to a place where you're potentially cut in half and you have to say goodbye to a lot of things that you think are good. You know, this is something that's killing a lot of annual conferences. Their connectional dollars make possible a lot of ministries that they feel very good about and are not going to be able to maintain if churches continue to disaffiliate, especially uh, in the numbers that we're seeing. A lot of people at the top of the UMC did not imagine that there would be this much interest in disaffiliation with such a, a high cost to pay. And yet what we're seeing in many annual conferences is lots of churches just want off this ride. And so at this, at this point, you have to make a decision. Am I going to continue to make it as easy as possible for people to meet the provisions of paragraph 2553, or am I going to make it harder? Now, according to people in Kentucky, in the beginning, conservative caucus groups could go and present to local churches. It was relatively easy to, wait, uh, to navigate your way through the process. But now um, uh, a lot of their strong county seat churches are being held up. Uh, they're bringing presenters in from the annual conference to, to directly appeal to, to congregations. Uh, no conservative entity, WCA, GMC, local uh, entities can speak to congregations. Um, there have been accusations of misinformation saying that um, conservative caucus groups are not offering balanced information. And then there are a lot of, um, you know, in some annual conferences, they, they have uh, scheduled disaffiliation votes and then postponed them. In a lot of situations in Kentucky now, they're just refusing to give a disaffiliation uh, vote date. Um, so things have gotten harder, and uh, it's it's not as though everything's been hunky-dory up till now, and then Bishop Fairley is saying it's going to continue to be hunky-dory, you just can't leave after June. Um, rather, it, it seems that, that pressures have been mounting, and I watched uh, another Episcopal address from Bishop Fairley given at the end of last year where he says, please don't mistake, this is my paraphrasing, I didn't pull it up, please don't mistake my uh, uh, willingness to be fair and gracious with a desire for churches to leave or even a, um, uh, an openness to that being a good thing. I put that in my own words at the end, but the, the whole address was, I really think people should stay. And even in his own um, uh, article, which I start, started off with, 
he tries to make the case for why it is that people should stay United Methodist. And um, he makes the case that we have, let's see, 12 compelling reasons to remain United Methodist because there is a humble strength and beauty in our connection, and we've all benefited from that connection. So I, I agree with some of them. You know, we believe in the triune God, sort of. You know, I, I've been following this. Uh, I'm about to interview the gentleman who filed charges against Bishop Olavido and the things that she said in a sermon about how Jesus had bigotries and biases and how we shouldn't make an idol out of Jesus uh, directly excludes him from the Trinity. Um, and I don't know if it falls more with Arianism or Unitarianism, but I know the bishop is, is not the only one in our denomination who refuses to believe in the perfect sinlessness of Christ Jesus, his equality with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Um, the reason he can say that we believe in the triune God is because we have systematically refused to exercise doctrine across the denomination for um, a century since Border Parker Brown, you know. So uh, when he says we believe in the, the primacy of Scripture, second point, I think, I, I don't see how he says that. I, I, I think there are plenty of people, I think um, um, Good News Magazine, what is his name, down in Texas, the Woodlands, the guy who leads it, he did a whole series on this where he had several examples going through different member uh, Methodist leadership where they speak against the primacy of Scripture. Um, so I, I just think, yeah, maybe generally that's the case, but the exceptions matter. Uh, we emphasize the sacraments as a means of grace and highlight the four dimensions of grace. I thought the word dimension was a weird thing to do there, but also our sacramental theology is is not robust in the United Methodist Church. We have two excellent documents, uh, By Water and the Spirit and um, This Holy Mystery, and very few have even read it, very few really comport with uh, the theology offered there. Um, our doctrinal beliefs and articles of religion are in the restrictive rules of our Book of Disciplines Constitution and have not been revised, altered, or changed. That is entirely true, but the problem is, functionally, are we upholding our doctrine? And that's where the, the, the argument is. You know, so when we're talking about Drew McIntyre's article and how we speak past one another, whenever these four things in particular are lifted up, they speak past the concerns of conservatives, who I think rightly raise the problem which is that we're not really um, expecting these of leadership, holding them accountable to it, and removing people who don't hold to it. So far as ecclesiastical stuff, we are connectional. I already talked about that. Uh, we're missional. Absolutely, yes. The problem is that, as you see engagement with mission go up, you see all of our other metrics go down. So we've been trying to define ourselves by mission, but when there's not unity around who Christ is or what a disciple looks like, I think you actually exacerbate tensions. That, that's for a different video. Church unity is a positive witness. Absolutely, yes, but it has to be true unity. Unity that sacrifices doctrinal truth is uh, no unity at all. Uh, we discover, develop, and send quality clergy and lay spiritual leaders. I just wrote no. I, I think... Um, I just don't know what he's seeing. You know, I, I see too many examples of clergy who have no care whatsoever about the historic Christian faith, our current doctrine, or um, being good to people they're in connection with. Um, I'm sure there are other denominations that have worse clergy, uh, but to imagine that the United Methodist Church um, is impressive in the quali quality of the clergy and lay spiritual leaders that we're producing, uh, I, I 
I can't validate that. Uh, so far as our witness goes, we are diverse in ethnicity. I wrote no because in America, you know, okay, fine, we have Africa, we have the Philippines, we have Eastern Europe, but here in America, we are not a diverse ethnic bunch. When you look at our bishops, we are, but when you look at people in the pews, no, we are not diverse in ethnicity or culture. We have diverse perspectives, but they talk past one another and don't get along. And same with ideas. You know, yes, they can be found represented, uh, but when you look at the top of the denomination, who's in representation, no, there's not a lot of diversity. When you look in the pews, sure, there's diversity, but then they're separated between churches most of the time. We build support and accountability for our clergy. And I said, you know, maybe in some areas there's... Uh, I, I had a previous appointment, I'm not going to say where, it's not in my annual conference, where I, I felt I had no support. You know, depending on where, well, we're going to talk about Bishop Fairley and the way that he uh, was able to support a, a church plant in North Carolina. Um, I think some clergy are very supported. Other, other clergy are left high and dry. Uh, and accountability, uh, it's the same thing. Conservatives, the whole problem we have is that there doesn't seem to be much accountability for um, doctrinal heterodoxy. Uh, united, we can demonstrate how to treat and communicate differences graciously in a Christ-like way. Sure, we can. We're not doing it, but it, uh, hypothetically, we can. I'm not sure we can with the current bunch of leaders that we've got that just don't seem to be able to... Well, and I don't think we can even if we change the leadership out. The, the, we've effectively trained our people in the pews to hate and speak past people we disagree with. So I, I don't see how that's feasible. And then the last thing he lifts up is we are disciples making disciples to transform the world. And all I wrote is define, tra uh, define uh, a disciple. When you, when you talk about what kind of disciples we're making, different United Methodist churches are trying to make very different, sometimes diametrically opposed disciples. And so, yes, we have phrases like this that sound good, but when you look at how they've been lived out for decades— uh, because we haven't had a unified vision of who's, who Christ is and who he calls us to be, it's, it's really been a miserable situation. So we, we have denominational leaders who say things like this, and people like me hear these things and go, they're looking at a different picture than me. And I don't think he's lying at all, but I do think that when you are in charge of the United Methodist Church and you want to see the institution flourish, there are certain things you don't look at because they're uncomfortable, or upsetting, and there are certain things you do look at because they're comforting. And be, you look at the good things the United Methodist Church has done, and you like to imagine, we could just do more of that. But the reality is that in order to do more of that, um, we got to get rid of some people that are in the way, you know? So there is a huge incentive. I'm going to look at this article written by, oh, who is it written by? Oh, I already looked at that one. Um, a United Methodist part, uh, Pact of Umar. Um, I, I think, who, who did write this? John Lomparis, of course. Um, he talks about Bishop Fairley, and um, we're going to talk about two different events. One is this Pioneer's Church plant in Durham, uh, North Carolina. Now, he has been the Bishop of Kentucky this whole time, since 2016, but for a, a time... We had some bishops had to double up on episcopal areas because some bishops needed to retire, and we couldn't call that jurisdictional conference until the judicial council made that decision. I forget which number. 
So anyway, Fairley was over North Carolina, and it was a good fit because that's where he'd done a lot of ministry uh, for many years before. I think he'd actually been a DS there as well as serving in local churches. So in his time there, there was a church plant done by a, a, a young, and let's, how is she described? Gracious, young, culturally sensitive, passionate, passionate and eloquent Latina pastor. She was trained at our own Duke University School um, and pioneering innovative approaches to urban ministry, and she wanted to do a church plant in Durham, North Carolina. It's an urban, very left-leaning area. Her name's Pastor Sherry Lopez Jackson, and uh, she set up shop, and immediately uh, local people noticed that she was not flying the rainbow flag, and uh, they soon discerned that um, while it was not at all the centerpiece of the what they were preaching in that church, she believed that marriage was between man, one man and one woman. She was a traditionalist, and uh, she wasn't preaching against the gays. She wasn't being nasty. But the local gay population and, and allies started protesting vehemently, uh, consistently against the Pioneer's Church, such that eventually uh, she was disowned by Bishop Fairley in the annual conference. I've seen um, they released uh, a printed two-page, three-page apology, which was just um, abysmally sad. Um, did not stick up for their church plant or their pastor, gave her no support, uh, did not argue with the local population at all, did not call for uh, compromise or understanding unconditionally, um, just dragged all conservatives through the mud with this apology letter, which he personally signed. Now, on top of that, there was this other event, um, and it was the the annual conference in 2022 at North Carolina, where he was the pastor at the time, and he oversaw the disaffiliation process there. And Drew McIntyre actually quoted this in his article, and that's what made me think to look it up. But um, he he gave this sermon at the annual conference, which was really good, and I thought that this point in particular was poignant. It has also been said that I've done nothing to prevent this, that I've simply been too gracious. Friends, I never thought that there was such a thing. So this is uh, with respect to the, the number of disaffiliations that uh, took place. So over in North Carolina for that annual conference session, it was something like 249 churches disaffiliated. Let me see if I can find that number. Yeah, 249 churches left in one vote, and this was just uh, appalling to a lot of leadership, and they said, how could Bishop Fairley make it this easy uh, to go? And uh, the accusation against him seems to have been all the way along that he's being too nice, too accommodating, he's making it too easy for things to fall apart, and so he's had to defend himself. And in that case, he defended himself by saying, you can't be too nice or gracious or kind when dealing with other people, and I think that has been his consistent approach. And so I'm going to bring it back to the conflict that I highlighted uh, earlier, which is when you've got a situation where somebody's going to get hurt no matter what, who do you choose to look out for? Um, that I, I saw a correspondence from another bishop recently who said, um, these conservatives who are advocating for uh, churches to be able to leave, they're not showing any concern for the emotional state of those left behind. And the thing is, people on both sides have feelings, 
and people on both sides want bishops to care about those feelings, but a bishop has to make a decision about whose feelings are, uh, are going to be honored more. Um, in this article uh, about that I started with, no, no, the article of Umar, that was the one. It started with language from Bishop Mueller, um, who, of course, was another uh, bishop who used emotional language. I talked about that in the Arkansas video I did. Um, he talked about if, if, if bishops and leadership are going to honor the, the feelings and integrity of conservatives in the denomination, it is not enough. Here's the quote that, that they lifted up in this article. It is not enough to say that there's a space for everyone. There needs to be an intentional welcoming of moderates and traditionalists that involves words, but more importantly, actions. The worst possible thing that could happen would be for moderates and traditionalists to receive the message, you are welcome if you stay quiet and pay your apportionments. The United Methodist Church needs to seek out moderates and traditionalists, value the gifts that they bring, and fully welcome them into leadership in the congregations, districts, and annual conferences in the general church. Church leaders will have to make sure this welcome is clear and unambiguous and offer specific reasons why moderates and traditionalists are a valued part of the church. Now, this is something that the current leadership cannot do because the progressive liberal leftist worldview is fundamentally different from the conservative traditionalist evangelical worldview. And we've seen the dissonance for decades, and we've prayed, Lord, show us a way, Lord, show us a way. And we haven't been shown a way because there is not a way. And we have refused to listen to God's answer. Um, General Conference 2019 was, for all intents and purposes, meant to be a final decision on the part of the, the general church, what direction we were going to go with sexual ethics and identity. And yet, whenever the results came in, about half the church in America just said, no, you made the wrong decision. We have not been willing to listen to the discernment process of the general count, uh, conference or to God himself as he has been silent in the face of us saying, Lord, show us a way. I and many others are of the opinion that we began a task that cannot be completed. It has nothing to do with our good intentions or how smart we are or how rich we are. There is no resource that you can give the church that will allow us to make a square peg fit in a round hole. And we need people at the helm who can understand this and soberly um, chart a way forward in recognition of it. Denial and avoidance are powerful forces, and I would love it if, if the people in charge of our, our political establishment, of our ecclesiological establishment, could see that and reckon with that, but human nature is what it is, and the reality is that we lift people up to these positions who use this emotional language and seem very in touch with their emotions um, because we, we feel like they get us, but the thing is whenever you're overwhelmed with emotion— you cannot make good long-term decisions. Emotion informs short-term decisions, not long-term decisions. And in the short term, the temptation is don't let people leave any more than you have to. We'll figure it out. But if you've looked at the long-term, what's come for decades before, what's likely to come decades afterwards, the good long-term decision is if somebody is not happy now, they've been here for a while, Odds are they're not going to be happy in the future, and we need to just let them go. So in Kentucky, you know, it's a wonderful thing that he gave five opportunities for people to exit. Part of the reality is 
a lot of conservatives have been waiting and seeing to see how's this going to play out. Is this really the best we're going to get? Maybe some other door is going to open up. Uh, the conservatives I talked to in Kentucky said, we did not move fast at all in this annual conference to empower people to leave. Uh, we're really trying to play catch up now because the doors are closing. You know, they only have another couple of months to go through the whole process, and that is very difficult. They can only go with the pace that their superintendents and, and conference staff can go. The reality is that there are a lot of people who, despite any clarity that they have, they've just not moved quickly enough and that um, they're not going to be able to get out. Now, I, I think the final thing I'll point to is is in his letter that he issues, he says flat out, Bishop Fairley says flat out, he believes... Uh, he says, my prayer is that you wait until the general conference to be held in 2024, where I believe another pathway for those wishing to affiliate will be made. This is something that I've been told from uh, centrists a lot, that they believe that there is a realistic possibility that general conference 2024 will design a new disaffiliation uh, strategy, not strategy, approach, uh, plan for churches that want to get out. I would love that if that's the case. I just see no evidence for it. I don't see the interest for it with how reluctant they are to let churches go right now. I just, why would we believe that they would be willing to do that when they're not even willing to let churches go when they're willing to pay them right now? I, I, I'm not able to connect those dots as easily as Bishop Fairley. So I, I don't know, who, who do I talk to to try and understand this uh, better? I would love to believe you know, if there's a better way to do this, I, I would like to wait. But if this is the best that we're going to get, and they're just trying to delay and and distract, um, at a certain point, that just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. So anyway, pray for Kentucky. Pray that, um, um, pray blessing upon Bishop Fairley uh, and his, his cabinet. Pray blessing upon uh, the pastors there who are trying to shepherd their churches. Pray for the United Methodist Church as different bishops and conference staffs try to uh, to navigate these things conscientiously. Uh, as as uh, as Drew McIntyre said, this is not a story of of uh, heroes and villains. This is a bunch of people who love their kids and grandkids, love their country, love their church, uh, but hold uh, not just different values, but many times uh, opposed values to one another. Uh, we need to stop hurting one another. We need to figure out a way to be adults in this situation. And so um, I'm intentionally engaging in dialogue with people who are different from me, trying to build mutual understanding, uh, see what we can agree on. It's going pretty well. I want to continue reporting on different annual conferences as well. So I, I appreciate everybody who comments on these things, uh, the encouragements that I get, um, the, the, the accusations that I'm like biased aren't necessarily helpful unless you have something specific that you can point to and say, you know, you, you're making an interpretive decision here that is that is not um, gracious or real, you know, and here's what I'm looking at. That's helpful, but if it's just, I thought you were going to be earnest and, and you're just a jerk, you know, spend your time some other way. That's silly. Um, so anyway, uh, you're welcome to write me emails at plainspokenpod at gmail.com. You can comment on the video and uh, just pray for me and my ministry. I get kind of anxious about trying to speak the truth in love. A lot of times things feel so hostile. Um, it, it feels like, you know, things might go bad for me if I continue to, to try and do this sense-making thing. So, um, but this is something I, I do believe that the Lord 
has called me to, I, and I, I hope you found it useful. And if you have found this useful, go ahead and share it with somebody. And um, I should be putting out um, an interview. Uh, well, lots of interesting stuff. I put out an interview with a guy over at the Asbury Revival um, just recently. So check out the channel if you haven't seen that. Amazing things going on in Wilmore. Yeah, that was the whole thing that got me on this was how strange is it that at the same time the bishop is um, sad and making decisions out of an emotionally sad place, you have this outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Wilmore and just this amazing encouragement. If you don't know, this Wilmore is in Kentucky. So it's not a United Methodist institution. However, it's Wesleyan, thoroughly Wesleyan. They put out so much of our so many of our clergy in, in the United Methodist Church. Um, it's just this weird counterposing of different phenomena going on at the same time where the Spirit's moving here, and then there's just a lot of sadness here. And I, I would just really love it if the Holy Spirit could, could do something there that allows people to, to let go, to be gracious, to trust God with the future, and, um, and to allow Him to purify His church. So... Anyway, let's uh, let's call it to a close. Thanks for tuning in. God bless you.